Good morning, church. Whether you're here, present on this lawn, or joining via live stream this morning, glad to have you uh, in the assembly of God's people. If we haven't met, uh, or if you're new, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church. The guy, as I say, just about every week who gets the privilege of unpacking the Bible as we open it up with each other, coming together in spaces like this. This morning, the plan is no different. So if you have a Bible, you can go, go ahead and open it up to Psalm 126. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can, uh, you can actually go right uh, below those song lyrics on the website, the Digital Connect Guide, um, just a little bit below that link for lyrics should be uh, Psalm 126, clickable link. You can click on that, go right to this morning's passage and just track your way from start to finish as we work through it this morning. Also on that Digital Connect guide is a, uh, a PDF of sermon slides, what would normally be behind me up on a screen in our auditorium. And so if you're a visual learner, please access that, take advantage of that and kind of track along as we go. Let me, let me go ahead and pray for us because we've got a little bit more ground to cover than some of the previous Psalms in this series. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning more desperate than we even know, asking you, pleading with you to minister to us through the preaching of your word. To use the language of this morning's Psalm, would you, would you fill our mouths with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy as we recall as we remember the great things you've done for us in Jesus Christ. I ask you to convict us of any indwelling sin by your spirit. And I ask you to encourage us to faith where we, where we need it, where we're desperate for it. As you attend the preaching of your word and power. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as I've mentioned, with each passing week of this series, we're currently taking the better part of the fall leading up to the season of Advent to, to put in our proverbial headphones, so to speak, and, and to listen to a 15-song album within the book of Psalms, the hymn book of the Old Testament, a playlist filled with lyrics, as we've seen in this series up to this point, giving something of an honest depiction of what it, what it means, what it is to live amidst the backdrop of a fallen, broken world. Inviting us to, to cry out to God with the full range of emotions, reminding us of who we are and where we're going, disciples of Jesus Christ on our way to the celestial city of God. At this point in this series, we've, we've currently made our way through the first six tracks, you could say. And, and already we've seen something of, a, of an incredibly diverse lyrical expression, right? We've seen songs of lament reminding us that, that things are not as they should be, that we're not home yet. Inviting us to, to come to the end of ourselves, the promises of, of this broken world. We've seen songs of providence, inspiring confidence in God's never ceasing care. A God who never grows wearisome of keeping his people, preserving his people. We've seen songs of worship, calling us to celebrate the covenant promises of God. And the ultimate hope and fulfillment of a greater temple, city, and king in Jesus Christ. We've seen songs of thanksgiving in response to God's deliverance, declaring that he does indeed answer the cries of his covenant people for mercy. And we've seen songs of confidence, reminding us that true lasting security is found in the surrounding sheltering presence of the Lord our God, the one who holds the, the scepter of uprightness firmly in his hand, going back to last week. 
This morning's psalm, Psalm 126, is a song of communal lament. It's one that finds its, its hope in remembering God's past works of deliverance. The psalmist remembers a time when God poured out his mercy upon his people and now cries out for a new expression of that mercy. Using creation imagery, similar to the lyrics we looked at last week associated with Psalm 125. In this case, it's not so much a picture of the sheltering mountains that encircle Mount Zion, symbolizing the surrounding safety and shelter of God's presence, but rather Psalm 126, it's, it's the imagery of both field and flood, meant to communicate something of the way God pours out his blessing upon his people, the way God relates to us, interacts with us, as we'll see in in the lyrics to come. Picking up in verse one of Psalm 126, the psalmist says this. He says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Right, the psalmist begins this song with a remembrance of the past, a recollection of God having poured out his restorative blessing in a, a pinch me, I must be dreaming kind of way. Like many of the psalms, there's no specified historical backdrop, no particular crisis mentioned. Some scholars argue for the return from Babylonian exile as the language of restored fortunes is used that way in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse three says, when the Lord your God, here it is, will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. That's exile kind of language. Other scholars argue that the language is much more broad, much more general than that, similar to what we see in the book of Job. So that at the end of Job's story, Job 42, verse 10, it says in the Lord, here it is, restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So in one case, you have the restoring of fortunes being a return from exile. In another case, you have the restoring of fortunes being uh, the return of twice as much as what Job had before he lost everything that he had. So that it's really hard to say with certainty which of the many memories the psalmist might be recalling here. I mean, we talked about this before in this series, right? Israel's hard and happy history, it's filled with a litany of stories of redemption and restoration, whether famine or, or plague or siege, that the mighty hand and outstretched arm of the Lord is always working to bring his people safe to shore, as we sing sometimes. That regardless of the situation, the response of God's people was one of laughter, one of joy, It's the appropriate response for any of us who have tasted of the Lord's restorative mercy in our lives. You see it in the story of the Exodus, the song of Moses, after having experienced God's deliverance from the Egyptian army, Exodus chapter 15, verses one and two. says, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. You see it in the life of David, in the lyrics of his great song of deliverance in 2 Samuel chapter 22, where we're told David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. 
And he said, David said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord, David says, who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. These are just a, a couple of the many examples of God's people filled with songs of joy and laughter in the wake of God's great pinch me, I must be dreaming acts of deliverance and blessing throughout scripture. Right, the psalmist recalls a time like that, Psalm 126, when he stood among laughing, joyful people, having been restored by the living God, a God who, according to Psalm 126, transforms dreamers into singers. That's what God does. The kind of bubbling response that onlookers can't help but notice. Verse three, right? The nations declaring the Lord has done great things for them. The surrounding nations were so impressed with the Lord's intervention in the lives of his people that they spoke of the greatness of God themselves. Israel was the talk of the town, you might say. The laughter and joy of God's people on display for the watching world to see just like we, the church, are on display as a city on a, on a hill for the watching world around us, even today. Eugene Peterson, in his commentary, he says, joy has a history, meaning it's, it's rooted in something that actually happened. Joy, he says, is the verified, repeated experience of those involved in what God is doing. It has as real, it is as real as a date in history, as solid as a stratum of rock in Palestine. Joy is nurtured, he says, by living in such a history, by building on such a foundation. Now, I would put before all of us, myself included, the question this morning, do, do you ever find yourself delighting in the wonder that you're a child of God? Perhaps even provoked to laughter by it all? I mean, we're meant to ask ourselves, what, what are the Lord's great pinch me, I must be dreaming moments in my life? This Psalm inviting us not only to remember God's past expressions of goodness and grace, but to remember fondly with gladness in our hearts. Notice verse three, the language shifting from past tense to present tense, from we were, verse one, to we are, verse three. The Psalmist says, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. The, the, the recalling of God's expressions of restoration and renewal in the past, fanning into flame something of a, of a present tense joy. Joining in with the, the song of the nations, verse two, the Lord has done great things for us. Right, it's our song. It's one of the, the more often forgot, forgotten spiritual disciplines, I, I would argue, remembering Recording those, those moments in which we've experienced something of God's goodness and grace and revisiting them regularly, often remembering the past work of God until joy and laughter are the song of our hearts as a means of making our hearts glad, fanning into flame a gladness in the Lord, knowing that, as Peterson says, joy has a history, past redemption and restoration informing present gladness. And not only that, but as you move into the final lyrics of this song, it moves into future language, inspiring confidence and hope in what's to come. Look at verses four through six. The psalmist goes on to say, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. 
Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The, the, the psalmist's remembering of God's former outpouring of mercy in the past leads him presently to cry out, asking God to pour out his goodness and grace yet again in the midst of present sadness, in the midst of present difficulty. Be it sudden or slow, field or flood. I love the imagery of this psalm. I love the imagery of the psalms in general. Just the broad brushstroke, the multifaceted way they communicate who God is and how he interacts with his people. But I really love this imagery because it, it connects, it resonates with what life is actually like, very much so. That you have the imagery of the Negev on the one hand being that of a, a network of dry valleys situated in, in the, the arid desert region of Judah, which at times, believe it or not, was strangely known to experience flooding the mountain soil uh, unable to absorb significant amounts of rainfall, sending the rains crashing below into rushing streams, communicating something of an immediacy on God's part in pouring out his blessing upon his people and pouring out his mercy upon his people. That the psalmist cries out for God to do that, to pour out his mercy powerfully and suddenly like a flood big enough to create streams in a dry desert place. And sometimes that's exactly what God does, right? Flooding our hearts with his spirit in an all of a sudden kind of way. Meeting our, our spiritual drought with the rushing waters of his presence. Bettering some sort of hopeless situation with seeming immediacy in a way that we could have never seen coming. And we could just sit around and share those kind of stories this morning with each other and be encouraged. And maybe we should do that after this service is over. Just sit around and talk about the rushing waters of the Negev, how God's done that in our lives with absolutely no toil on our part, solely the floodgates of heaven opening, bringing streams of restoration, streams of renewal, turning the desolate land, you might say, to use that imagery, into a bed of flowers. Like, we should pray for that. Like, expectantly, with anticipation, charismatically, Believing like the psalmist that God oftentimes moves like the rushing waters of the Negev. But we should also be aware that God doesn't always work that way. Sometimes leading us to a place of flourishing more slowly, more methodically. Inviting us into the process of our own renewal. Like a farmer sowing seed, verses 5 and 6. The imagery of a harvest reminding us that the sheaves, they don't come overnight, right? The harvest failing to become visible until months after the tilling of the soil. That sometimes our restoration and renewal comes through a long, arduous season of faithful, tear-filled labor and trust in the Lord. The psalmist declares that those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's words in Galatians chapter six, verse nine, where he says, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Right, it might not be in our own timing, it usually isn't, but God promises his people a harvest nonetheless. That with God, every dry place has the potential to become a river, you could say. Every seed of sorrow, the potential to become a field of joy. 
Let me say that one more time because my own heart needs to hear that a second time. With God, every dry place has the potential to become a river. Every seed of sorrow, every seed of sorrow, the potential to become a field of joy. That's the hope of Christianity, right? If it's not, what are we doing? That that we can confidently expect that what was characteristic of God in the past will be characteristic of God in the future. That he doesn't arbitrarily change the way he relates to and interacts with his people. Praise God that though we're tossed to and fro by the waves oftentimes, ever changing, God's not. That pain and difficulty are sure to come but they cannot forever and fully extinguish Christian joy, Christian gladness. That the psalmist talks about a gladness sustained through tears. Talk about honesty. I can't remember who said it. I wanna say Spurgeon, but I'm not sure who said that when you become a Christian, you become happier and sadder all at the same time. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul in his writings, right? That we know that Even if we see nothing of the joyful harvest of the language and imagery used in this psalm, this side of eternity, we will see it when all said and done. That we will forever play in the open field of wildflowers that God has for us, never to be sorrowful again. James 5, 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, James says, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That, that he will establish our consummate joy when he returns, our inward groaning, Romans 8, someday replaced with never-ending joy. In a moment, 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye, powerfully and suddenly, like the rushing waters of the Negev, I love the the language. If you've been around for any period of time with us, you probably heard this passage quoted before. Isaiah 35 verses one and two says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. That according to Isaiah, there's coming a day when the the wilderness and dry land will be happy. No drought, no fruitless desert. Rather the river of life and the tree of life. The dry riverbeds no longer dry, but rather, rather forever flourishing in the flood of God's eternal grace. Surely he will do that. To quote Eugene Peterson again, He says, there's plenty of suffering on both sides, past and future. The joy comes because God knows how to wipe away tears and in his resurrection work, create the smile of new life. Joy is what God gives, he says, not what we work up. Laughter, he says, is the delight that things are working together for good to those who love God, not the giggles that betray the nervousness of a precarious defense system. The joy, he says, that develops in the Christian way of discipleship is an overflow of spirits that comes from feeling good, not about yourself, but about God. We find that his ways are dependable, his promises sure. That this psalm, very simply, it's about about God's covenant faithfulness. It's about God's sovereign grace. 
evidence in the past, now the basis for confident expectation that God will act again. And we have the greatest evidence in the past, do we not? We can look back on the coming of Jesus, God's ultimate act of restorative mercy and blessing and trust that his great promises for the future will indeed come to pass. So that I would ask this morning, do you know that joy, the joy of being restored to God in Christ, the delight of standing among the redeemed? If you're not a Christian, I invite you to to put your trust in Jesus believing that he's the only hope for lasting laughter and joy to use that imagery of this morning's psalm. Having died in the place of wayward sinners that we might be restored in hope to the living God. If I could just use the words of the psalmist, if you're not a Christian, the Lord has done great things for you in Christ. I invite you to cry out to him as savior, to to bow down to him as king. And if you are a Christian, For the sake of God's glory, let's be louder than those stinking birds with our laughter, with our song. The rocks will cry out if we want, and apparently birds will too, right? Our joyful song, it should be in one accord with the psalmist. Our song should be, when the Lord restored our fortunes as lost sinners, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. That God's given us reason to laugh. He's given us reason to to sing, even if at times we have to do it through tears. And not only that, he's given us reason to trust. He's given us reason to hope in the midst of present challenges, difficulties, sorrows. To pray for more of his goodness even now. To pray for more of his grace even now. As we longingly wait for Jesus' return. So that I would, I would ask in closing this morning, where, where do you see signs of drought in your heart? To use that imagery of Psalm 126. Where do you see signs of drought in your life? I encourage you this morning to, to cry out to God to bring the rain. To birth something beautiful out of the hardened soil to remember all the times that he's done that before, knowing that it's a prayer he loves to answer and he's not arbitrary in the way he relates to you or me. Whether with a sudden flood of his grace, like the waters of the Negev or a a seasonal harvest in his perfect timing, he's done it before, he will do it again, church. That's the God that we get to worship together We get to do it through our song in these moments to come, through the receiving of the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. If you didn't grab a cup on your way in, there are cups on either uh, of these tables on either side of the lawn. You're welcome to go grab one of those over the course of these last two songs. Just encourage you to, to pause to practice the spiritual discipline before you receive those elements of remembering. And then to receive the bread and the cup. And then we get to leave this place and keep worshiping because worship is not confined to a one hour time slot on a Sunday morning, right? It's part of it, but we get to leave this place and take our song out to the streets, you might say. And my hope would be that people would say, man, the church is the talk of the town. Look at what God has done for them.